This is the Redemption Church Podcast. For a list of messages, events, and more, please visit experienceredemption.com. Thanks for checking out the podcast. Here is today's message. Good morning. So if you're new around here, my name is Stephen. I'm the pastor. Thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning. And today's a a special morning for a couple of reasons. Uh, One of the reasons is that we are celebrating our seventh birthday as a church today. So seven years ago from this weekend, we opened up the church. We were in the movie theater in Levis Commons. I'm just curious. How many of you were there? Wow. All right. Y'all stuck with us. I appreciate it. There we go. So seven years now we've been doing this every, uh, every Sunday morning, except for two. You know, it snowed really bad on those two Sundays. You might remember them over the last seven years. And it has been uh, just an absolute joy uh, to see what God has done in this church. And three years ago, we moved into this building. And, uh, and then things have been a little different over the last three years. More of you have been showing up. And uh, for some of you, this might be your first time today. And there's something really important uh, that I want to communicate to you. Being your first time, don't ever expect to get coffee again. Okay, <laughs> that was it. Um, we we don't serve coffee, uh, but it was our birthday, so we thought we would splurge and spend fourteen dollars and, uh, and and give you guys all some coffee this morning and some donuts. And uh, now, thank you for joining us. I know many of you you're here this morning uh, because you, you might have been responding to the mailer that we sent out. Two Lies and a Truth, or maybe you saw the uh, Facebook videos, there was uh, ads all over the place, and for whatever reason, you find yourself here this morning. And a lot of you, you might be in that process where you're looking for a church, and we know how fun that process is, and it's an important process to find where does God want me, where does God want our family. And so when you show up at Redemption, we try to make things really, really clear on who we are. We believe the Bible. It's as relevant today as the day that it was written. What it has spoken for 2,000 years now is true now just as it was true then. And so when we get here every week, we open up the Word of God and we let it speak to us. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage in Isaiah 59. And here's the deal. You can already tell. My voice is like shot. It's not even my normal bad voice. It's like... Some of you are like, I hate your voice anyway. You sound like a raspy 13-year-old girl. All right. I get it. That's my normal voice. This is more like whatever that bug is going around. I got it like Saturday morning. All right. So here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to preach until I can't talk anymore. All right. And then if that happens, I don't know, somebody leave. All right. I definitely don't need coffee. Isaiah 59, 14 through 15. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled in the public squares. It has, hasn't it? I first read this passage, I think it was about two months ago now, maybe three. And I read it. It was just in my normal Bible reading time in the morning. And, you know, I've read the Bible through a couple different times. But every once in a while, you hit a passage and you go, gosh, I don't remember this one. Or there's just something different going on in the world. And so you read it and you go, whoa, like that means something right now. And so I underlined it in my Bible. Uh, and then I started walking around and telling everybody, it's like, have you read Isaiah 59, 14 through 15? And they're like, well, yeah. But you tell me just so I know you know, right? Like, okay. So I flip over to it and I'm like, read this. And they read it and they all look at me and they go, whoa. Like that's that's the world we live in. Isaiah 59, 14 through 15, uh, it's uh, situated chronologically right before the time of the deportation. So before the Israelites are going to be sent off uh, to the land of Babylon. And what has happened here is uh, culture has fallen. In Israel. And in verse 14 and 15, it's like a summary statement, uh, like halfway through the chapter. And see, in the first two parts of the chapter, we'll look at those over the next two weeks, uh, we see what precipitated this. And then on the back side of the chapter, we see the hope that's on the other side of this. See, in this text, uh, Isaiah 59, it is simultaneously very depressing 
very hopeful. It's both. There's a lot of gloom as you read through Isaiah 59. There's a lot of reading it going, oh, yeah, it's gotten bad. But then it ends. And when it ends, it like gives this like spark of hope that even in the darkness, God is working. That even when we can't see it, we know that he has a plan. And so the last two weeks of this series, we'll work through the end, and we'll talk about God's strategy on how he brings redemption in the midst of a fallen time. But right here in the middle, verses 14 and 15, it talks about a culture that has lost its way. It no longer knows the difference between good and bad. It no longer knows uh, the difference between righteousness and evil. Uh, It's a culture uh, that you can't even decipher or discern what is true anymore. It's a picture, sadly, of the world that we live in. If you've been watching the news at all any time in the last couple of weeks or months or years, maybe you're watching the news or maybe you're listening to a speech or, uh, or there's a conversation going on, a commentary, and you get done, you turn off the TV and you go, I just don't believe any of it. They're lying. And they're like, well, who's lying? I don't know. All of them. And it's like we intuitively know who all of them are and what they're lying about. Like everything. And we look in and we go, it it just seems like we don't know what is true anymore. Well, this passage shows us that that's exactly what's going to happen. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through two things. First, I just want to identify the situation. And then secondly, I want to talk about the solution, the situation and the solution. The situation in verse 14 is clear. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Said another way, culture has fallen. And look how culture has fallen. It follows a pattern. And uh, we'll we'll, uh, note some of this pattern over the next couple of weeks, but today we'll talk it more in general summary, that this pattern is consistent, almost like, almost like there's one being that wants to build culture and another being that wants to destroy it. Almost like there's uh, there's a God who loves creation and loves humanity and is building something good, and then there is an enemy that wants to destroy that which is good. And so what does the enemy do? He's a counterfeit. He's a liar. And so what the enemy does is he takes that which the good that God has created, he counterfeits it, and he destroys it. And that's exactly what he's going to do as we walk through this passage this morning. Now, I knew the name of the series, or I know the name of the series is Two Lies and a Truth. And so in each uh, week, we'll have two lies and we'll have a truth. So let me give you those here right at the beginning. Uh, lie number one is this, and, and some parts of culture will want you to believe this right now, that everything is fine. You look around, you're scratching your head, you're like, that doesn't seem right, that doesn't seem right, uh, what's going on here? And there's a part of culture that will say, don't worry, everything is fine. Then there's another lie, <clears throat> and that lie is this, that we're just in a natural trend, and don't worry, everything will revert back. You hear that one? People are like, oh, no, don't worry about it. We've seen this before. Like, like things move, and then they kind of uh, go back, and then they move, and then they go back, and, then, and, and this is all just part of a cultural flow, what we're experiencing right now. Here's the truth. Reversion only happens when the church does something about it. That's the truth. That when there is nothing pulling culture back into normal, into truth again, that reversion doesn't just naturally happen. What happens instead is humanity continues to follow the path that it wants to follow. Now, let me show you the path. Here's the beginning of it. Justice is turned back. We serve a God of justice. We serve a God of law. We serve a God who likes order, and he created that order. He started right in the beginning of the scriptures when he created it, and he created it in perfect order. By the end of this, you guys are just going to be chucking water bottles at me. So God creates 
justice. He creates a rule of law. Back in the Old Testament portion of the scripture, God grabs his people, the Israelite people, and uh, he, he uh, puts them together and he begins to create a system for how they're going to live. Uh, today we know this as the, the Levitical law or the Deuteronomic law written into the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And it's this perfect system that God creates on how society is supposed to function. And it's most epitomized through what? The Ten Commandments. And so if uh, you've been around a courthouse or uh, if you've, uh, you know, seen uh, sometimes legal shows, they have, you know, uh, the, the courtroom in there, and oftentimes you'll see what? The Ten Commandments. And then what happened, oh, say 10, 20 years ago? People started saying what? Oh, we got to take them out. We got to take out the Ten Commandments. Uh, these are religious symbols, and uh, we can't let them on our government properties because when we do that, uh, what we're doing is we're upholding one religion. And when we're upholding that one religion, we're violating the separation of church and state. And by violating the separation of church and state, uh, their argument would go uh, that we're, we're, we're ruining our culture and we're ruining our society. Now, let me tell you something. The uh, desire to remove the Ten Commandments is not just some misinformed understanding of the separation of church and state. The desire to move the Ten Commandments out of our courthouses is a, um, a strategy to disrupt the rule of law that God has created for society to function. That's what's going on. <clears throat> See, the Ten Commandments were a, a picture of the law. And in the original republic, uh, the Hebrew republic, God created this system and he created this structure. And he said, this is how you should operate and this is the rule of law in which you should operate. Now, a lie began to emerge, and this lie has been around forever. We could trace its philosophical roots, um, but it really started taking root in our country in the 50s, and here was the lie, that we can create a, new, uh, a neutral, secular society. We can create a neutral, secular society. In other words, <coughs> without a, a moral foundation, we can still have a good culture. And so what happened? Well, the people who bought into this, they started chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. And as they were chipping away at God's moral foundation for a society, society began to follow it. And so what did we see? Justice was turned back. We saw one of the greatest shifts of this over the last 10 to 15 years when we moved from a model. And when I say a model, not necessarily from our legal position, but more from our cultural understanding. We moved from a mental model of biblical justice, and we exchanged it for social justice. Let me tell you why this is important. See, biblical justice is rooted in the rule of law, and it's rooted in the Holy Scriptures. It is from the, the Bible and the rule of law where we get many of the things that uh, we have taken for granted over the last 200 years, right? Uh, you get to face your accuser. Uh, you have to actually have a testimony and uh, corroborating witnesses and all sorts of different uh, things that have been written into our judicial system, right? So I'm glad I'm not the only coffer in this room. This is good. All right, y'all keep coming. It's like an amen this morning, all right? <clears throat> so all these ideas that have been rooted into our judicial system that created this society of uh, legality and justice that we had, right, they were then exchanged. And by the way, Romans tells us that this exchange happens all the time. Because uh, humanity, apart from God, will exchange truth for a lie. We'll, we'll take what God has created and we'll say, I don't want that. Give me the lie. Okay. Critical justice or social justice uh, um, coming in and stepping in then and replacing biblical justice was a process of justice being turned back. Now, in critical justice or in social justice, here's what happens. Instead of making determinations based upon the rule of law and that which is right and wrong, you make determinations based on what are called power dynamics or cultural things instead of law. And so this is why you can look back in 2020 and go, well, why was it illegal for churches to gather in parks, but it was legal to riot and destroy personal property in cities? Why? 
because the truth was exchanged for a lie. Biblical justice was replaced with social justice. In social justice, you, um, you, you take uh, factors like income, whether high or low. And by the way, uh, maybe you know this because you're smart people. Uh, in the scriptures, do you know that it tells us that when it comes to our legal proceedings, that we are neither to take wealth nor poverty into consideration? You're not. Why? Biblical justice, right? What does social justice do? It begins to throw all of these other factors on it. What does this lead to? It leads to a justice system that is a mockery. And what do we have right now? A justice system that is a mockery, right? It's not based on law anymore. It's not based on what is right or what is wrong. Uh, It's based on political dynamics. It's based on power dynamics. It's based on all of these other things. And guess what then? Justice is turned back. I prayed this in my prayer, but let me say it again. The amazing thing about the Word of God is this. It doesn't just tell you what happened. It tells you what is happening. The Bible is living and active. That's why when you read it today or when you read it in 10 years, it'll hit you different. Not because it's changed, uh, but because it's alive. It's alive. It's living and active. And so the Bible here, it's not just telling us what happened in Israel in that time. It's telling us what is happening right now in front of our eyes. Justice is turned back. Now, what happens when justice is turned back? Righteousness, then, stands far away. As justice gets pushed out or as it turns back, as it, as it um, revolts from God's standard, then what does righteousness do? Righteousness goes, well, then I have no place here. I have no place here. I have no place in, uh, in a society where, where there is no justice, uh, where there is no moral foundation. And so righteousness begins to like uh, disappear from the center. Let me personify this. <clears throat> you ever like at a holiday, uh, you take a family picture, right? You got all the generations there, and you're like, hey, let's get a picture. Who do you put in the middle of the picture? Grandma and grandpa, right? You put grandma and grandpa in the middle of the picture. Who do you not put in the middle of the picture? That one cousin's boyfriend who you know ain't making it to Christmas, right? <laughs> you don't put them in the center of the picture. You put them on the peripheral so that when they break up, you can cut them out, Right? You put grandma and grandpa, they're the patriarchs. You put them in the middle. What happens in a society when justice is turned back? I'm speaking metaphorically here, you gotta follow me. Grandma and grandpa keep getting pushed to the edge. They keep getting pushed to the edge. Righteousness, a couple things happen. One, righteousness will get replaced, it'll get replaced. And so righteousness will be here. And when I say righteousness, I mean a general sense of knowing that which is right and knowing that which is wrong. We used to call these values, right? And what we'll do is we'll take righteousness and we'll say, okay, hold on, righteousness. Why don't you switch? Okay, you go there. And then something else will say, oh, hold on, righteousness. Why don't you go there? Okay, now you go here. And then all of a sudden, righteousness is standing at the, the end of the picture when it should be right front and center. And who's taken over the center of the picture? The boyfriend that'll be gone. And then today, we call that boyfriend inclusivity, tolerance, niceness. And what we've done is we've exchanged the values of uh, biblical righteousness, and we've created counterfeit values. And then what we do is we put those in the center I write an article every month in Pathway Magazine. Uh, Next month's article is entitled, The Lie of Christian Niceness. Niceness, as the world defines it, is not a fruit of the spirit. It's typically an attribute of the cowardly. Niceness, as the world wants us to be described as nice, means this, let righteousness fall apart. Let justice be turned back. 
That's okay. Just make sure you're nice in the process. And what we do, when righteousness is turned back, it, uh, it's replaced, or sometimes righteousness just retreats because righteousness is scared. And so righteousness just kind of moves its way to the back, and it lets all of the other values take center stage. If it doesn't retreat, or if it isn't replaced, sometimes what righteousness does, and this is sad, righteousness begins to reflect the culture. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, I'll use this term next week, but it's called syncretism. And it's when the church, or those who used to hold the standard of righteousness, when they see that their place and their position is being moved, what they do is they buddy up with the world and try to look just like it. Can I tell you, that's a false righteousness. It's not a real righteousness. When the church just says, well, why don't we just look exactly like the world? No, that's not the church's position. So then righteousness stands far away. Here's what happens next. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. And uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. Where there is no moral foundation, there will be no immoral limitation. Let me say that again. Where there is no moral foundation, there will be no immoral limitation. When you've turned justice back, when you've tried to follow the lie of creating a secular society, a society that is not built on the, the word of God, when, when you do that, then you, you, you rip out any foundation. And where there is no moral foundation, now the limits to immorality are endless. Why? Because what would stop it? Nothing. Truth is stumbled in the public square. It doesn't exist anymore. It fell down flat on its face. It was like a president trying to climb up to Air Force One, okay? It just fell. I thought long and hard about that one. You've all seen the memes, come on. It stumbled. Truth is stumbled in the public square. Now, the public square there, the term public square, uh, it, or squares, it's plural, uh, what it refers to is the centers of society. Now, <clears throat> if you read our Google reviews, which I encourage you to do because they're really fun, you'll see one, and it labels me a couple of different doctrinal positions um, that I didn't even know I had. So it was very nice to learn about myself on Google. And there's, there's a couple of different ones right now that exist. And one of them is called Dominion Theology. Another one is called uh, the Seven Mountains and, or Spheres of Influence. And what's funny is that these two different doctrinal positions uh, come from di- very different places, typically. Uh, in, um, like they start in different places, but they end at a similar conclusion. Um, and most of the time, the people in those two different camps don't really even get along that well. Um, but apparently, they agree on this. Now, the idea behind both of them is this. Um, and, and, and I will say this, whether you want to call this dominion theology or you want to call it seven mountain theology or um, I like to just call it the Bible. Here's what I mean by it. it the idea is this, that I, and I told you we like to be clear around here, um, I unequivocally believe that every part of society is better when King Jesus is in charge. I just do. Right? I'd rather have King Jesus than King James, right? And I mean LeBron, right? (laughs) I'd rather have King Jesus over our families than Big Daddy government, right? I'd rather have King Jesus and his moral foundation leading our government than I would a secular, neutral society that will have no moral limitations. I just think that when people grow up and are discipled in Jesus Christ, 
and then operate out of that faith in every part of life, we will have a better world. Let me say this again, because this is one of the lies. One of the lies is, well, our society has fallen apart, and the church was in charge of it for the last 60 years. No, our society fell apart because the church began abdicating its responsibilities in parts that it had previously offered leadership. That's why. We're not here today because the church overstepped. We're here today because the church lost its backbone. Truth has stumbled in the public squares. What are these public squares? Well, there's, if you ask the seven mountain people, there's seven, right? <clears throat> Let me list a couple. The family. The family. That's one. And this has been an assault now for decades. Started with no-fault divorce. By the way, where did it start? In the legal system. Justice is turned back. Let's throw out God's standard. Let's put in our own. What happened next? Well, uh, this led to what we have all, of course, seen, the decay of marriage in our culture, the decay of family, uh, the rise of, um, uh, of, of, of kids who don't even ever know one of their parents, right? Mostly the father. And, and the decay of family. This, of course, um, then... Uh, accelerated into 2015 when we had the Oberfeld decision uh, and we legalized gay marriage uh, as just to say, hey, God, we just want you to know now completely and fully, legally, we totally disagree with you. That was what the decision was. Yeah, God, I know. This is how you're supposed to set up a, a community and a structure. This is, how a, this is how legally it's supposed to happen. We don't care. We would rather do it our own way. How's that worked out for us the last eight years? Things gotten better or worse? Come on. Worse, yeah. <coughs> so is the family. And where there is no moral foundation, there is no immoral limitation. Do you remember a day and time when people who tried to say, uh, they would try to say, hey, the slippery slope thing, that's not real. Like one thing doesn't necessitate something else. They're lying. When you open the door to abandon God's standard, you haven't just opened the door to abandon God's standard in one way. You have now opened up the door to abandon God's standard in every possible way. And so what we see now in the family what we see now in marriage, what we see now in these spheres, they're here, give it another 20 or 30 years of truth stumbling in the public square, and we have no idea where they'll be. Why? Because where there is no moral foundation, there is no immoral limitation. It'll just keep going. There's no restraint anymore. What was the restraint? God's standard. Now it's been pushed to the back or removed completely. Truth is stumbled in the public square. Look at the next thing it says. Truth, uh, I could go by, I could go through all the spheres, by the way. Government, we could go through that one. Business, we could go through that one, right? I mean, business, we just have to go through the list. Look at the major corporations. Standing for righteousness and truth or not? No, of course not, right? You know, some of you, you might be good Christian businessmen. Great, amen. We need that. We do. Keep going. Right? But we're competing with the, uh, with the giants, right, who dominate our spheres. Truth is lacking. Truth is lacking. Let me say this. Where there is no moral foundation, there will also be no moral clarity. Where there is no moral foundation, there will be no moral clarity. How is it that we have arrived at a place as a state where we are actually going to vote on whether or not it is okay to kill a baby up until nine months. This is outrageous. There's nothing in here. And how is it that I still see people's Facebook posts who profess faith in Christ that are trying to strike some kind of middle ground on this? There is no middle ground. 
There is good and there is bad. There is evil and there is righteousness. We see the same thing in our society. You want to talk about public squares falling apart, right? One of our most esteemed institutions, Harvard, has a bunch of its students running around saying that Hamas is good. This is evil. These two things are not the same. This is what happens when truth is lacking. Where there is no moral foundation, there will be no moral clarity. And so you say, well, what's going to hold the line? What's going to tell us now what is right and what is wrong? Well, if God's not the standard, then guess who becomes the new standard? Us, humans. Now, some of you might like Rousseau, but I'm telling you, it doesn't end well. I was listening to somebody the other day, and they were talking about um, why we should vote no, which I'm on, right? We're all on vote no, right, on issue one. And I was listening to somebody talk about why we should vote no, and they got to the end of it, and I looked over at my wife, and her eyes were big, and I said, well, that fell apart quickly. Because their entire argument of why we should vote no, this person was saying, is because as humans, we all need to find the inner goodness inside of us. Newsflash. We aren't good. Christianity, just, just to make sure we're clear. Christianity does not start from a presup... Pres- oh, man, you know the word. Presupposition, that's it. That you're a pretty good person and you need a little bit of improvement. Christianity starts with the foundation that you're horrible. And you need a new heart. And only Jesus can give it to you. That's Christianity. So vote no because of the human goodness inside of you. No, it is that lie that brought us to the point of having moral ambiguity in the first place. Where there is no moral foundation, there will be no moral clarity. So then you look out into the future. You're like, what's the future of marriage? I don't know. 20 years, someone's going to be marrying a robot. Will that shock you? No. Why? Because where there is no moral clarity or where there is no moral foundation, there will be no moral clarity. If truth keeps stumbling in the public square, if truth is still lacking, who's going to turn it around? Who's going to stop it? I know some of you are like, Elon Musk will. Okay. Listen. It's good to have people who don't share our faith on our side from certain things. All right? Let's just all keep praying that Elon finds Jesus. All right? Because that's what he really needs. Look at the next line, guys. Remember, we're still in my first point. I only, I only have two. All right? He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Let me say this another way. He who doesn't go along with the narrative will be hunted and targeted. Justice will be turned back. The moral foundation will be uprooted. Truth will be destroyed in our public squares. And then, to cap it all off, anyone who tries to go against the grain, anyone who departs from the narrative will be hunted, one translation says, like an animal. Or as we would say here, they will be targeted. They will be indicted. They will be, um, uh, they'll be thrown in prison. Uh, They'll be audited, right? Or they'll be like Riley Gaines, just a girl that wanted to swim, get this, crazy, against other girls. That's it. That's all she wanted. She stands up. What happens? A couple weeks later, she finds herself barricading herself in a room as people want to attack her. Okay. You depart from the narrative, you get attacked. Now, this happens on a corporate level, it also happens on a personal level. 
Some of you have felt this. You felt it because you departed from the narrative. Because you looked in and you're like, wait, this doesn't seem right. Wait, this is not the Bible that I've learned for the last 40, 50, 60, 70 years of my life. You departed from the narrative and you got attacked. You departed from the narrative and you were pushed out. You were departed from the narrative and you were shunned. And it's happened and you have felt it. I mean, look at J.K. Rowling. She's not a Christian. But she just simply said, this transing of kids is disgusting. And they turned on her. You depart from the narrative. You'll be hunted like a prey. I listened to a podcast the other day. It was a pastor in a church planning network called Acts 29, which was founded as a theologically conservative church planning network. This pastor out of the blue, got booted out of the network. Why? Because he wouldn't give in to critical race theory and championing BLM on his stage. Okay. You depart from the narrative. What happens? You'll be hunted like a prey. All right. I'm done with point one. That's the situation. I tried to make it as dark as possible. Now let's talk about the solution. This is the good part. First part of the solution is this. The Lord sees it. He sees it. He's up and he's watching. He's not blind to what's going on. He knows what he's doing. He's still in charge, and he's still on the throne, and he knows everything that is happening. The Lord sees it. First, let me say this. The Lord sees it. So shame on Christians and churches and denominations who would deny their risen Savior to satisfy the world. He sees it, and his words should be clear. He who denies me in front of men, I will deny in front of my Father. But the Lord sees it. And look what Jesus himself tells us in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you, you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What did Jesus say? He sees it, and he looks at you, and he says, if you depart from the narrative, if you refuse to go uh, where the world is going, if you will stand strong, blessed are you. What is blessing? It is an internal goodness, and it is an external favor. That's what blessing is. And it doesn't always play out where you get everything you want in this life. I'm not going to tell you that. But there's a power to the blessing of God's grace. And he says, let me tell you who my blessing is for. It is for each and every one of you who will depart from the narrative of the world and stand for the truth of the gospel. Blessed are you, church, when they give you one-star reviews. Blessed are you, mom and dad, when your, parent, when your kids, when your kids won't have the conversation with you anymore. And I know it hurts. And I'm not here to tell you that it doesn't. But I can tell you, blessed are you. And I can tell you, the story isn't over. Keep praying for that child. Okay? Keep praying for her. He says, rejoice and be glad. Why? Because every time they pour out insult and every time that they come after your character and every time that they say bad things about you, God is pouring millions into your heavenly account. This is why you got to have a strong eternal perspective, by the way. This is why you got to realize it ain't about this world. It's not not about this world, but it's about something more than this world. It's about eternity. He says, blessed are you. You've got a reward coming. Then he says this. 
He says, you're like the prophets before you. Come on. It's like God's looking out. He's like, hey, remember when they fired you because you refused to give in to all that garbage? You're just like Elijah. Good work. Hey, remember you? When, uh, teacher, when, when you refused to call that seven-year-old by a different pronoun because you didn't want them falling into the lie, you're as brave as Deborah. He said, you're just like the prophets who came before you. That's the first part of the solution. God sees it. Here's the second part. Let me go back to Isaiah 59. It displeased him that there was no justice. What's the second part of the solution? He did not like it. And here's what's awesome. When God doesn't like it, he does something about it. So what did he do about it? He saw that justice had turned back. He saw that righteousness had stood far away. He saw that truth had stumbled in the public square. He saw that he would depart from it, would become a prey. And he saw it, and he didn't like it, so what did he do about it? I'll tell you what he did. He sent something greater than justice, greater than the law, right down to the middle of the problem. When he saw that righteousness had stood far away, God sent the epitome of righteousness in the form of his son, right down to the center of it all. Where truth was lacking in the public square, God didn't just send a book for us to read. He sent the personification and the full embodiment of truth, his son, the way, the truth, and the life. And what happened? His son departed from the narrative. And what did they do? They hunted him like an animal. They turned against him. They came after him. And they put him on the cross. And what happened on the cross? The most simultaneously unjust and just thing ever happened on the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21 says it this way. It says, for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, and it doesn't say it in this verse, but I'll add to it, in him, we who were sin, who were born into our sin, might become the righteousness of God. God saw that justice had fallen, and so he sent his son down to restore it. But how he restored it was greater than even what had previously existed. Let me explain. Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The whole world will be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What it's alluding here to is this, that we will fall under the weight of the law, and that when the law breaks through, all right, or when, the, when we're sitting under the law, we will never be able to live up underneath it. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, that law that became the foundation of society, that standard that was written in, that the world came in and destroyed and deteriorated. And when I say the world, I mean us too, because we didn't live up to the law either. God said something greater than the law. Said someone greater than the law, so that society could now be built on something even better than the law itself. What? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Make no mistake, by the way, because there's a lie out there that all will be saved. All will not be saved. All who believe will be saved. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace 
as a gift. Your salvation is not a reward. Your salvation is not a reward for the good that you have done. Your salvation is not a reward even if you're standing up for truth right now in society. Your salvation is not a reward because you made it to church today. Your salvation is not a reward because you made it to church every Sunday for the last 40 years. Your salvation is not a reward because it is not a result of anything that you have ever done. Your salvation is a gift because it is the result of the thing that Christ did that you could never do. It's a gift. You are justified by his grace as a gift that comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What did he do? He sent a truth that would never stumble in the public square. He sent a truth that would never give in to the push of the culture. And he sent a truth who could restore our just and right standing before a holy God. And he gave it to us by the shedding of his blood on the cross and our belief through faith in receiving the gift of salvation. Friend, what is the solution? The solution has always been the same. 2,000 years ago for Israel, or 4,000 years ago for Israel, 2,000 years ago in Rome, 1,000 years ago, 300 years ago, 50 years ago, and today. The solution is the gospel. The solution is Christ paying the payment of our sin, us embracing the gospel and stepping in to salvation. Then what happens? A couple chapters later, Paul gets done with his theological discourse, of which we've read some of it. He gets to his conclusion, and he says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, out of the mercy of God, or out of the gospel that you have now received, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Said another way, what? Embrace the gospel, and after you have, be totally and completely transformed by the gospel. And then as you are transformed by the gospel, you bring that gospel with you into every sphere, into every square, into every part of your life. And as you live out that gospel, then what will happen is the world will change around you. My friend, the solution for the problem in the world that we face today it's not less than political. It's not less than social. It's not less than economical. It's not less than educational, but it is way more than that. The problem of the world that we face today is that it needs to know and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. Which means this. It needs to start with you. It needs to start with you. And maybe you came this morning because you know that I'll get up and I'll tell everybody to vote no on issue one. And I will. And maybe you came today because we're bold enough to send out a mailer that talks about biblical sexuality. And we will. But I don't want you to be here today and to think that we think that those things are the ultimate solution. I need you to know there is one solution for your problem, and that is Christ and Christ crucified, and Christ resurrected. And so don't strap on morality and throw out the gospel. And as a church, we can get excited about living out the gospel in our world. But we've got to make sure that the gospel is always breaking in here first. Because it is one thing to stand from a moral platform, 
and talk about what should and should not happen. It is an entirely different thing to stand from a place of humble transformation by the gospel and say, no, this is just simply not what is best. And so we must always speak from a place of humble people who have just been changed by the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I can trust in the weakness of my physical voice this morning that the power of your Holy Spirit in your voice is much stronger in each heart. So, Father, I would pray for any this morning who are looking for earthly and worldly solutions that they would know this morning that the deepest need is the gospel. Oh, and it is a gospel that compels us to action in every square. But the first action is our humbling ourselves before you. Repentance of sin and embracing the grace poured out on the cross. Friend, if you, that is you this morning. If you still think your salvation is a reward, the result of the accumulation of all of your good deeds. Repent. Repent of your sin of pride. You can't earn it, man. Jesus did it for you. The scripture says, all those who believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Christ was raised will be saved. Right now where you're at, believe in the gospel. And Father, I pray that we would be a people and a church so transformed by the gospel, the grace of this, our salvation. Father, that we would lay our lives down like Paul says in Romans 12. We would not be conformed to this world. We would be transformed by the renewing of our minds through the power of the gospel. And we would offer ourselves and all that we have so that this world might reflect the beauty of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us for today's message. For more information, you can visit Experience Redemption on Instagram or Facebook for updates, service times, and ways you can get connected. Want to partner and support the work of Redemption Church? You can give online at experienceredemption.com slash give online to explore your giving options. We also stream services on both YouTube and Facebook Live, so be sure to join us and share your experience. Thanks for checking out the podcast. We will see you soon.